Welcome to Breakthrough with Brig, the podcast that teaches high-achieving Black women how to use thought work to break through barriers, get out of their own way, and become their best self in the most loving and sustainable way. Y'all ready? Let's dig in. always I'm always excited when I have a guest but this was going to be a little bit different because yes we're going to talk about Deeply Rooted she was a participant of Deeply Rooted but she's also an author of an incredible book and I just wanted her to talk about her book on reproductive rights as human rights women of color in the fight for reproductive justice and so I have author <laughs> and friend and client, Zakia Luna. So, Zakia, introduce yourself. <laughs> and I'm Perfect. sure it's doctor, but I'm like, I'll let you introduce yourself. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, thanks for having me on, Brig. Uh, it's such an honor and a little surreal because I hear your voice in my ear almost weekly on the podcast. And my voice is going to pop up at some point. Yes, <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, yes, and I, I giggled a little bit when you said author because, in some ways, even though um, as a professor we are continually writing and producing texts, we are often not socialized to think of ourselves as authors in the same way that people who are writing poetry or, you know, romance novels or mysteries or something along those lines. And so I, I am still coming into my um, identity as an author. <laughs> you are a published author. Yeah. I am. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's um, an amazing book. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. It's been, um, it's been exciting to see the response to it. And I am indeed a professor. Uh, I used to be a professor in California and now uh, as a a year and a half ago, I'm a professor in Missouri, so I am back in the Midwest, nice. and my work focuses on like social movements, reproductive issues, and human rights, and I particularly focus on women's activism, but more specifically, women of color's activism, so that's um, a very short bio of me. <laughs> right. right, so good, and we'll get to why that's important, mm -hmm. but give us a little bit about your journey as a Black woman. However you want to tell your story. I love hearing people's story. Like, how did you get there? And what you do? And what was the thoughts? And how it... I just love, love that. So, like, give us a little behind the scenes of you. Yeah, for sure. So behind the scenes. Um, well, something important I would say actually about the book. And periodically people notice that I dedicated it to my mom. Mm. And... I thank her for taking us to both uh, anti-apartheid rallies and skate rinks. And, and I love that's, it. um, <laughs> and right? that's, um, yes, yes. Yeah. That's the household that I grew up in. And, and my sisters and I have talked about this a little bit, how it was what I knew. It was my understanding. Yes. My mom was raising multiple kids and she was a single parent, but she also was the smartest person I knew. <laughs> Sometimes in that way that, you know, kids see their parents, but also, you know, she had gone to college. And I think that's something that wouldn't have been expected of her. 
because she had her first kid at 15. Mm -hmm. And not only did she graduate high school, she went to college, she went to UC San Diego, and later in life, you know, she worked at universities, <laughs> uh, working in student affairs. So I was in some you know, formative years seeing the different events that she was helping put on. And sometimes she worked for an office of Black student programs and another campus, she worked for transfer student programs. And, you know, looking back on it, the reality is that yeah, the U.S. as a society isn't as supportive of families as it purports to be. So childcare can be really expensive. Right. <laughs> and if you don't have a friend who's available on that particular night or time, you're going to bring your kids to work if need be, <laughs> you know, and if they're not in school. And so I just was used to seeing issues of justice being talked about and action being taken mm -hmm. and used to seeing people learning. And, and she would give us extra homework. Well, she gave me extra homework <laughs> after school. Because she knew the schools weren't, they were highly ranked schools, um, various elementary and middle schools I went to, but she also knew they weren't teaching the range of history. So we were, yeah, reading very Afrocentric books, but also learning about other communities. And sometimes she would tack on additional science work. I mean, she, was, <laughs> so school was very important. I love that. I do know that as a mother raising three kids, one of the things that I can look back on now is that I wasn't as proactive in exposing my kids to like taking care of the filling in that that gap. And it's one of the things that I kind of, you know, had to go, okay, well, sometimes we get to forgive ourselves that like, yeah, I was a woman struggling, working, single mama, three kids doing it. And I didn't have that as a background. So and I think for me, that's why I work with Black women helping us, because that gap was one of the reasons why I struggled a lot later, because I didn't have that history and that grounding and everything. So I love that your mom did that for you. I love that, too. I don't know that I fully appreciated it when I was younger, though. Of course, right? <laughs> She's making me do more homework. Yes. Yeah. Or, you know, after school, catch the bus to work in the conference room at her workplace, you know, or right. I would have wanted to do something else. <laughs> yeah. 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 And also having that sense, um, I say this, isn't always appreciated when you're out in public though. <laughs> you know, like, you know, we were raised to some degree to ask questions of things and to question systems and to question yes. the norms. Right. And <laughs> that generally, particularly for young black women, people don't always respond to that well. Even sometimes people in like extended family. And so my mom was unusual. And, you know, as a kid, I didn't fully appreciate it, thought she was kind of weird, but also did in some ways sort of understand that she was trying to ensure a particular pathway for us and really emphasize the importance of an education. Yeah, there'll be obstacles, but you can do the things you want to do. So, yeah, yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. And yeah, I can see how. If you're raised to like question the system and everything like, no, actually, that's not what I heard. That that isn't like the teacher is going, oh, well, tell us. <laughs> right. Or sometimes I remember some particular things. And, and I, I know some of the audience's folks who grew up in either shifting their schooling or did grow up in some predominantly white spaces. 
And then sometimes being asked as a young kid, like, you know, during MLK mm-hmm. week mm-hmm. or something, like, speak to X experience. And as a kid, you know, that's a bit weird. Right. You don't yeah. know exactly why. <laughs> yes. And so it's not always on your terms that you're being asked to share some right. expertise. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I have I have a thought of something that happened to my kid, but I'm going to leave that mm-hmm. out of this because okay. we don't want to go there. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And I think as Black women, we all have those experiences. We've mm-hmm. experienced them or we've gone to the school to talk to some people because mm-hmm. of those experiences. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I totally get it. So, but like, how did you transition to, tell us the journey through college, yeah, to this, to your work, to your body of work where you are an author of an amazing book? Tell me. <laughs> yeah, well, I just sort of knew there was an expectation to go to college of some kind. And also that there wasn't a whole bunch of extra money around the household. Someone wasn't going to be going to college and they were going to stay in the household. They were going to get a job. <laughs> right. And, and we already, you know, were working from, you know, whether it was babysitting or then later sort of official jobs that mm-hmm. got taxed you know, in high school to pay for um, various things. And both my sisters had kids while in college and still completed college and then went on to get additional education. So again, there was this expectation to going to college (laughs) one way or the other, and it may not be easy depending upon what ends up happening in your life, but yeah, like education is important right? and there's some value there. And I, I went relatively close to home, about an hour away. There was, I I studied abroad for a year Mm -hmm. and when I came back, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And a friend who worked at the campus center I was working at, it seems like you're kind of into like learning and more learning. Like, have you thought about graduate school? And I was like, oh. <laughs> and then I started doing some of the campus programs that sort of geared, um, some were general programs, some were geared minorities. And again, my mom had worked for some of these programs. So it wasn't a totally new idea that I might want to think about additional avenues, but really taking the step to do like a summer research program and go to a different campus and get trained to take GRE tests Mm -hmm. to get into school, you know, just, yeah, that was um, critical. And then I applied to grad school and I was very sure that I didn't want to stay in California. So I didn't apply to any schools in California until the last minute, like a couple of weeks before applications were due. Mm -hmm. And I did get into some California institution. I remember thinking explicitly, like, now is a time where I kind of have the flexibility to go elsewhere and try something different. So, you know, if I don't leave California right now, I'm probably not ever going to. And so I I went to grad school, yeah, in Michigan for seven years and then spent another year in Madison, but always with an interest in thinking about social movements and activism of women of color, some of which I, you know, witnessed to some degree as a young person, but also you know, in classes, it was just always interesting to me, like what Black women doing, what were Chicano women doing, what were Asian Pacific Islander women doing, right? And, right. Yeah. And yeah, how could I contribute to people learning about that? Right, exactly. So how did it come to where not only was it women's rights, but women's reproductive rights? I think part of that is because I grew up in a household sort of understanding that my family was different from the mainstream, mm. not because someone <laughs> ever pulled me aside and said that, right? 
But knowing that based on what was shown on TV <laughs> and periodically, you know, it was in the newspaper that like, hmm, my family, <laughs> which is uh, a Black woman raising Black girls with some support of fathers, but, mm-hmm. you know, understanding that like people didn't think that was okay and didn't approve of that. Yeah. So not all families are being valued. Right. And I'm so glad. I just want to stop you with that because it wasn't even considered a family. It's a broken home, not a family. Yes. Right. It's like, yeah, (laughs) you're a part of a broken home. And oh, my God, there's statistics that go with that. Right. So you're not even a family is the narrative. Yeah. and And let me tell you, I got that lesson from my daughter. My youngest daughter, because I like everybody knows I'm pretty real and frank. So I was on this thing of like, I was taking in that internalized messaging of like, I was a single mother and we needed to be a family. So dating was very important to me and like finding a stable one, you know, that supportive and family values. And I was like, I think my daughter asked me something. I was like, I was trying to make us a family. And my daughter was like, but we already are. I was like, damn, <laughs> we are. Oh, as you're saying that, I think I, as a child, my mom did date. <laughs> but I didn't really want to know about it. <laughs> hear about it. Yeah. And certainly met some people, but I never thought to ask her or I asked her many questions later in life, I will say about sort of like her logics of certain things. And, right. But I didn't go too deep into family, sort of how she imagined. And I think part of it is because I just assumed (laughs) she was as confident in her sense of raising us as I sort of perceived it because (laughs) she's my mom. Like I did what she said that we needed to do usually. (laughs) And and that's also probably being, you know, the youngest. Sometimes you see or don't see different things. That's so good that we assume that our mothers are as confident in what they're living as we are perceiving it. That is such a good, like, yeah. So (laughs) there was that background there. And then in college, I worked at different like paid jobs. And Mm -hmm. the longest term one was at a campus women's center. Right. And I did multiple internships there. There were paid internships and then would work with sometimes other centers to put on programming, like we had a cross-cultural center. And I think I had put on at least one event related to reproductive issues. But usually now, depending upon the name, it might be called like Women and Gender Center, Gender and Sexuality Center, or something along those lines, right? Usually either in January, which is Mm -hmm. Roe Month, Roe v. Wade ruling month, or maybe in Women's History Month, Mm -hmm. there would be something around reproductive issues, right? So there was partly around that. Then it became even more the case, though, that I was fortunate in my first couple of years of graduate school, I ended up getting onto a faculty project that was led by a Black woman. And it was an international project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was interviewing feminist activists. The site was interviewing feminist activists as part of this yeah. big thing called the Global Feminisms Project. And right. I joined the last couple interviews and I was doing... I think my role was like administrative coordinator or something for those interviews, which meant taking care of the travel and arrangements uh, to get the people to the campus 
TV studio. I mean, they did these interviews live with like a lot of audience and there was background research and all of that. And the professor, um, Liz Cole, says to me, after I've been you know, giving her some more of the background research on this interviewee, she goes, I think you should conduct the interview. Mm, okay. <laughs> and you can still find that interview somewhere online <laughs> in the University of Michigan website with all my ums and ohs. And the person I was interviewing is one of the, called like the mother in some ways of like the modern reproductive justice movement, Loretta Ross. And, <laughs> and that got me more even particularly interested in this women of color reproductive health collective, as they were calling themselves at the time, and focusing more on sort of how did this come to be, this amazing coalition? How did they come to be when it seemed like the odds were against them? All of these things, you know, that got me that much deeper into, yes, the data, but also the stories, right? And to be able to then place, yes, the experience I had you know, growing up, but also like some of the likely experiences my mom had, right? And so many women like her. I don't um, want to pause you right yeah, there. Yeah. Because there must have been something about it when you were doing your research that your professor was like, I think this is the mother of the reproductive. So this is a big interview. And she's like giving it that like don't pass over that. That was huge. That another black woman, like, hey, we do help and support one another. But what do you think it was that she was like, she saw something like a buzz or whatever. What was that? Yeah. And I had taken women of color theory class with her Mm -hmm. in my first year. Yes. And this opportunity came up the end of my first or beginning of my second year. Mm -hmm. So part of it is that like she had already seen me, right? Expressing an interest. And she also saw the types of topics I was writing my papers on. Right. which was on women of color organizing. Um, at that time, I was looking to some degree the U.S., but also some degree Central America and South America. And that had to do with some like, just general interests because I have a whole set of family in South America, a whole dad's yeah. side of the family. Yeah. And yeah, there was just a lot of inspiration. And so when the opportunity arose, the, the reality is in academic settings, certainly sometimes professors send out wide calls when they have an opening. But often they look to classes they've taught and think about, oh, who expressed a particular interest or who additionally came to talk to me in the office about things. <laughs> and I had done that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so good. So yeah. good. There was some A-lining there. Some action. For sure. For sure. I was listening as the podcaster, then I started listening as a coach. I'm like, is she going to dismiss the fact that she created this? <laughs> Well, I also I'm sorry, coaching you right now. I was like, don't you, don't you dare. (laughs) And it is important, absolutely, that that she reached out and said, Hey, would you be interested in this initial opportunity? And then, you know, having seen, I think, you know, sort of what work I was producing up to that point and sort of organizing some things in background. And also she was just someone who Partly in her discipline, they tend to do things much more collaboratively. She's a psychologist, so they tend to do a lot of things in labs and they have multiple people and they do regular check-ins. My discipline sociology, sometimes, sometimes not. (laughs) But I was in a joint program in sociology and women's studies, so it was a joint doctoral program. And so there also tended to be a bit more of a connection with the 
doctoral students because there were fewer of us in those joint programs. So we also got to know the faculty a bit more by going to those events and that were for us. But yeah, I <laughs> didn't just randomly email me. I had taken a class with her she, and, and she had some expressed interest. Yeah. Yeah. And, and was in part of a program. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So, so, so good. Okay. So why would, because you know I'm in Texas. So let's just go there. I'm in Texas. Most of my people, probably a lot of my people, because a lot of my people are friends, are in Texas or any of these other states that this is up. Why should the person driving their car on their way to work, worrying about their kids, all the stuff? Like I said, I couldn't even fill the gap for my kids. Now, let me be true. I could. I just didn't have the awareness that I needed to. What would you say to that person that's in my same, like nothing wrong with her. We're not going to bash her, but like, how can we help her understand the awareness of this and why should she care about this? My first thought when you were referring to the gap, uh, I thought if you don't fill the gap, Mm -hmm. someone else will. Exactly. Right. We're a broken family. Right. So I'm on this treadmill trying to fix my broken Mm -hmm. family as opposed to accepting my family the way I am. A whole lot Mm -hmm. different energy. And Mm -hmm. it took my daughter to go, but we are a family. Like if we considered ourselves a family, what would I have done differently? So good. Mm -hmm. Okay, I love that. Like if we don't fill the gap, someone else will. Tell me. And uh, the the history of the U.S. Yes. <laughs> people in power who tended to historically be white, male, right. and property owners. I mean, we go back, yes. and it's really important to go back, right? The, yes. the listeners for this podcast are primarily Black women and femmes. Mm-hmm. And this country, from the very beginning, <laughs> let's just be real, has been very clear <laughs> that Black people are not valuable. Mm-hmm. Black women in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even go further back to colonization of native families, right? And so those people, they don't even exist. I mean, this country yeah. is based on a fiction. We discovered right? Some, America. <laughs> yeah, right. Arrives, and there yeah. are already people there. Right, yeah. <laughs> with family structures and governance right. and, mm-hmm. and currency systems. And they say, this doesn't matter. Right, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't look like what we do, so this doesn't matter. Yeah. And that's the basis for the development of... I love that, like, this doesn't matter because it's Mm -hmm. not what we do. Yeah. And then what you start to see, uh, and I will acknowledge I am not a full-on colonial scholar. Right. (laughs) There are some folks who, who, and actually one of my um, postdoc mentors, uh, we co-wrote an article, and she wrote the part on (laughs) laws in the colonies and how they started to shift about how you determine property, essentially, right, right? and property rights and families. And we know from slavery, right, that Black people's families were not considered families. They weren't even considered, like, people. Right. And Black women didn't have a legal right to their body. No, at all. At all. And what is so important, and a mentor of mine, Dorothy Roberts, amazing scholar, (laughs) activist, wonderful person, you know, she was the first, one of the first people to really make the point in her book, Killing the Black Body, mm-hmm. that a big reason why this matters, <laughs> not just for Black women, is that 
that logic was the basis for the rest of reproductive and family policy all the way to today. <laughs> so if you start by looking at the experiences of enslaved Black women yes, and how their families were not cared for or treated or even seen as legitimate. Right. And that it they weren't even seen to have right, yeah. the expertise to raise their families. It makes more sense mm-hmm. why you have legislators, not just in Texas, but frankly, many states yes. <laughs> who think they know better. Yeah. They don't know how to do it. So let me help them. Yeah. Yeah. And on one hand, that's really simple. On one hand, it is so sort of mind-blowing, <laughs> sort of deeper you go into. And when you start to look at some of the wild things that now we can see on social media that legislators still say, right? And how they talk about Black kids, Black women, Black families. Yes. Hundreds of years later, <laughs> many of them right, yeah. still think like um, our families aren't important. However, we define family, that we are not doing it right, and that it's all about the individual not putting in enough effort. Mm. Mm. Right? Yeah. So it's a shame base, too. Like, you don't do it our way. It doesn't look our way. Not that we created a system that created that. Let's not take ownership of the fact that the reason why we look or do the things that we do is because it's a system that you created. But and I'm going to shame you from having to live in that system that I created and call it your fault. Yes. And the other thing, <laughs> when you look at history, you also see that there are plenty of folks who are supposed to be benefiting from that system. Yes. who started to say, hold on, though, this isn't benefiting us either. And I do think, you know, there's a lot of complications <clears throat> and complexities and sort of mainstream yes. white feminism. Right. And yet also, like... <laughs> Part of the origin was to say, hey, this isn't working for us. Right? right? Yeah. Like as Black women, like, no, this ain't working for us. We yes. know it wasn't working for us. But there's right. also what we've been saying that. And so, and they're the ones who are supposed to be benefiting the most. But also like, and this is again, what I say to folks, it's not just about, oh, what's happening to Black communities. Like that can be the starting point, but let's just be clear. <laughs> like when we're trying to continue to reinforce systems. It can't only be about shaming one group. Right. That shame is being used as an example to other groups to say, don't go too far out of line. Oh, so good. (laughs) Right? Because if it's acceptable for them to shame one group, then the other group is like, I don't want to be shamed. So it's a way of keeping everybody in line. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And also, again, the rights that, and, you know, I've been giving a lot of talks mm-hmm. this month. January is the month that typically the, depending upon what side you're on, there's celebration of the Roe v. Wade ruling that legalized abortion. And so there's often a lot of talks <laughs> in January that we people want to talk about reproductive issues. And but this is the first year. Right. Like the, what yeah. you're saying is when we go back to it, this isn't about, like, we so make it about abortion, but it's so much more. This is about the right. Because, again, what you said was legally women, Black women, never were legally able to inhabit, to own our bodies. And that yes. has been the premise on every legislative, everything. This is so much more than just abortion. 
It's like going back to that. And we wonder why Black women don't want to feel our feelings or we worry about our bodies. It's because our body has been a source of shame from the beginning. And really, it's about like bodily autonomy. Like who who controls your body? Right. (laughs) Do you get to control your body? Yes. And if from the beginning of your time in a country, the answer has been not right. you. Like it wasn't like we're saying like, you. do you control your body? Like I can't say no. It wasn't even considered rape for someone to take advantage of a 13, 12, six-year-old girl. That's not rape. She doesn't own her body. Yes. Yeah. And that's why the, the reproductive justice movement specifically developed. Yes. And reproductive justice as a phrase came about in the 90s by Black women who were doing work around reproductive issues, including contraception, right. abortion, but also they were engaging with work around HIV activism, right? Yes. Um, in recognition of the fact Black women were, you know, experiencing deaths at such high rates and no one was talking about it, right? And, and they really wanted a way to talk about reproductive issues much more expansively, right? Mm-hmm. That, was about, in their mind, sort of merging reproductive rights and social justice. And so reproductive justice in the shorthand is about, you know, right to not have children, also the right to have children and the right to parent your children with dignity. Please say that again, because so many people (laughs) think it's just about the right to not have children. Say the three concepts again. Reproductive justice is about the right to not have children. Yes the right to have children and the right to raise those children with dignity. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. If we really think about the way, like the whole premise of like, you're not doing it our way. So therefore it's wrong. That last part to raise your kids with dignity stems from the police brutality to every single thing. Or to just like raise them. I mean, again, thinking back to enslaved black people, yeah. Like they did not have the right to keep their children. Yeah. Their children became property yeah. of the owners right. and they could decide to sell their children. Or separate them as soon as they got separate. them. Like, yeah. he's going to stay in a house, you stay in a field. Yeah. And then also around, you know, rights to have children, we have this, you know, there's a history of forced sterilization within yeah. the United States. Right? Right. And there's this push and pull really around, you know, some families, and generally white families, white wealthy families being encouraged to have children mm-hmm. <laughs> and communities of color, particularly black families being discouraged from having children right. <laughs> and poor families generally being discouraged from having children. Right? right. And some of that shows up in the law through poor sterilization, right? which many states have laws on the books, including, you know, California, which people think of as highly progressive, <laughs> for example, mm-hmm. saying that, you know, it's a matter of public health. So if need be, if someone has a disability or if they uh, committed a crime or some immigrant groups, and at the time it was immigrant groups included, like Irish people, right? Like we're talking like early 1900s, that these people are going to be taking over and we need to make sure they don't have too many kids, right? So you also have that on the books and there's cases like the Ralph sisters who were 12 and 13, you know, 1972 being sterilized. Right. in um, a public hospital, right? And young Black girls, right? 1972, guys. Yeah. I was yeah. on this earth, living and breathing. Yeah. 
Yes. And it's also, you know, at that time, though, we're seeing the expansion of reproductive rights through you know, national sort of access, legal access to birth control, both for married couples and single couples. Right. Uh, the following year, we have the Roe v. Wade ruling, but you also have, right, this, this simultaneously, right, other communities, um, like in 12 and 13, the Ralph sisters. Right? Yeah. And there was, you know, protests around that, right? And, and so I want to also be clear, while there's also, you know, intense repression <laughs> and what people refer to as reproductive oppression happening mm-hmm. to various communities, mm-hmm. there's also resistance, right? That is important. I think, to talk about and why, you know, this book is about and my work and why I get inspired. It's not just about, oh, these poor people and, you know, they just sat there and took it. No, no. Right. (laughs) There was resistance. Yes. So I want everybody to definitely get the book. Okay. I'm going to say the name of it one more time. And then I want I want to ask you a couple of companies. Reproductive rights as human rights, women of color, the fight for reproductive justice. Okay. So. Now that I said that, why should the average person go and get this book? How can they fill their gap? Yes, yeah. Well, one... Um, a little resistance. <laughs> well, I think it can be hard to... They could love to know that there's something off when they're in certain spaces mm-hmm. or they see certain representations of their communities on TV. Right? Yes. Even when we have, quote, unquote, good representations now, there's still some time here right right yeah and it's not just you (laughs) there's a whole system and apparatus behind this and there's legislators some of whom are you know descendants Mm -hmm. and we know this descendants of slave owners who who think of the good old days as as the days when it's so easy great (laughs) it was so easy for them to remove our bodily autonomy Mm. now there's with increased attention, right, people can at least speak up a little bit or can at least go on social media and follow some of the organizations who are doing work, whether it's in Texas, whether it's Florida, whether it's New York, whether it's Missouri. Tell them where they can start. Just follow some people and like to start bringing out awareness. Yeah, I would say following Sister Song, Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. Okay. That. Say it one more time. Sister Song, okay. Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. Okay. Online, they're generally Sister Song mm-hmm. WOC. Okay. And because they are, you know, just this amazing space of women of color founded and led organizations <laughs> working together. And they've been working together for decades and really proving a lot of folks wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because the other part was they were saying, like, we're not going to, as one of my interviewees said, like, we're not going to try to promote policy that throws our communities under the bus. Yes. Because we acknowledge that there are poor people in our community. We acknowledge that there are queer people in our community. We acknowledge that there are people of faith, right, Mm -hmm. who are part and parcel of our community. Yes. And we need to think about what does it mean to say we want policies that support our bodily autonomy, that factor all of this in us. Yeah, yeah. I'm so and, glad that you said that, like yeah. that we have people of faith, because I know there are some people of faith that listen to me. And what would you say to them on this one? Why would they want to open up their, at least their awareness and make an informed decision? Yeah. Well, the beautiful thing about Sister Song in particular is that there's been people of faith from the very beginning. 
And if you ever were to go to a sister song event, like I was just in Texas a few months ago, yes. it starts off with um, a land acknowledgement, right? Then we move to a libations. <laughs> then there's prayer. They draw from multiple faith communities, right? Which is very different than what you will see in the predominantly white spaces, right? Right. Yeah. As I say, like, this is important to people. And for many people, their faith is actually part of their motivation, right? This is how they see their justice work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's something that you can also see when you go onto, say, a website like Sister Song or their social media, okay. for example. And I think that going to reputable spaces for social media can be important. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Which is why I'm saying starting there. And because Sister Song is also a coalition, when they retweet or on Instagram repost, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. they're reposting folks that have been vetted. Folks have been doing the work for a while. Yes. And, uh, because that's the other thing. The phrase reproductive justice has certainly gained in popularity. And even here, legislators who only think abortion is important, say reproductive justice. They well, reproductive justice has a very specific history right. and it is about that expansiveness of the experiences right. rooted in Black women's mm -hmm. <laughs> experiences in this society. So it also will help you sort of see and connect to then the broader network of spaces. Yeah, that includes all three rights. The right yes. to yeah. decide if I don't want kids, the, the right to mm -hmm. and the right to raise them and parent them with dignity. Yeah. Also going back to like what you're saying in the very beginning, it helps give language also when you're on their social media to what does it mean to think about family? Yeah. Because so many of us have extended kin networks yes. <laughs> that right. are just as important as the quote unquote nuclear family, right? Even if you are fulfilling that sort of model. And that's something that, um, again, but it's just integral to Black communities. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. so get to see the pictures of families and spaces, you know, all there, right? And get that reflected back to you, which is just so important, as we talked about, like in the rooted container. Yeah. So good. So good. Okay. So I'm going to read through the table of contents only because I want you guys Ooh. to see what's in. So chapter one, restrictive domestication, human rights, and U.S. exceptionalism. Y'all, that right there, just that, that U.S. exceptionalism? Okay, come on, right? <laughs> Push to human rights marginalization in the U.S. women's movement. Pulled, so we were pushed, and now we're pulled to human rights engagement with global gathering because I think if we only think of it from an American point of view, we're missing the global impact of this. Training the trainers and miss backlash. Okay, tell me one thing on that one, because come on now. I know to train up people and there is a backlash. Like when we as Black women already have a problem with visibility and then backlash comes. Yes, and in the book, the backlash is both within movement, yes. <laughs> some contention about which ways to go as right. movement. Yeah. But then also more broadly, right? Society saying everything from, you know, rolling back protections that came under previously under TANF, like so welfare reform. We yeah. have increased policing of communities of color, right? Like yes. all of that is happening. 
Right. And then you have this coalition sister song also saying like we need to be talking about expanding people's rights. Yes. We need to be talking about our full human rights for full human flourishing. Right. Right. And that's tough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Like that podcast episode you have where the title is, you know, where they're talking about you. <laughs> like, like, right? We're going to have some things to say. Yeah. <laughs> and like understanding how to address that and where it's coming from. Like I always say, like understanding where we are is so important. And I love that you do this work because I think these are the type of things that needs to be done. And I'm just glad that I get to support people doing such epic work. <laughs> Putting their epic shit out there, as I say, <laughs> as they say. Okay, I'm going to finish reading the other topics right quick. Uh, writing rights and responsibilities, they're all intertwined, developing human rights consciousness, and they are, okay? And the last one, puppies and rainbows or pragmatic politics. Y'all, you got to read that one. Organizations engaging with human rights. So... Thank you for coming on. Ah, yes. So she's yeah. given a discount code, y'all. So if you want to purchase this book, where do they go? I'm going to put a link on my website for you to get this book from the New York Press, and it will be at a 30% off with free shipping order. Okay. So yeah. go to the link. If you go to the link, there's a discount code. You can get it through the New York Press and yeah. you will get free shipping. So Go to the yes. link in the show notes because I'm not going to try to leave. Yeah, yeah no, it's in the press website, right. uh, Luna yeah. 30. And right. I will say I want to give thanks to my press because I also think, you know, they're part of the reason why Oprah took note of this book. <laughs> yeah, right? Like we didn't even mention it. This book was mentioned as Oprah's top, what was the top? Um, the Oprah Daily put out a list of the 12 books to read after the Roe v. Wade Smackdown. Yes. <laughs> it, it was one of the 12. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's important. It's important because I think, because the media and the people against it only want to make it like they keep us right here. And so we're in a fighting about something that is so much bigger. And I think when we understand that, we can agree to disagree on some things, but there are some things like, yeah, we have to fill the gap because... Everybody else is filling a gap for us. So I love that we have a resource for that. I also think uh -huh. <laughs> the reason why, like, to me, the Oprah Daily thing was, I mean, it was very unexpected, but also why it was so important is because it's one thing to write a book that academics who are sitting steeped in all this stuff find interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is different and it took a lot of revising and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting to make the book more generally accessible yeah. and in some ways that Oprah Daily thing was it like wow like you use an author queen <laughs> apparently I'm an author <laughs> use an author right yes yeah. okay so quickly because we only have like three minutes four minutes yeah. this wasn't about deeply rooted but I can't do this without saying I loved having you in that container. Just why did you join and what did you get from it? Well, one, I had found you, you know, your podcast through mm -hmm. an interview you did either on Danielle Sabri's website or maybe Carlo and Thyle, or maybe even Brooke Christie. I don't know. But yeah. I was like, oh, yay. Black woman who's doing coaching. 
right? I had done another coaching experience, a couple others, and they had been very valuable. And also mm-hmm. I wanted to be in a space with other people who identified as black women. Yes. I knew there would be some other conversations that would be possible. Mm-hmm. And also that some aspects of the coaching would probably be different. <laughs> yes. Just based on <laughs> right the podcast, right? And for me, um, I was also transitioning institutions, I was recently tenured, and you know, already yes, thinking about what are some next steps for me. Yeah. But wanted a, a specific container and guidance <laughs> on the ways to go to the next level mm-hmm. and to work on something that I wouldn't necessarily have tried in a different container. Yeah. And it was really valuable to be in a container with many coaches. There was also, you know, MDs, multiple folks, right? High achieving, I think generally like sort of high, to some degree high earning, right? But also like, huh, that reminder, <laughs> money and titles, <laughs> your brain is still there. Yes, right. About things. <laughs> and right? so... <laughs> I had already identified, you know, that I wanted to do some work around money and thoughts around money and it was just really so important to have a space regularly where it's either getting a coaching or thinking through or thinking different thoughts about like, what does it mean and why might the idea of pushing oneself to do epic shit be challenging internally? Mm. <laughs> But the relationship to money, to that, for me. Yeah. And sometimes discomfort with money. Because the thing is, we have these goals to like do more, level up, get more attention, you know, get more of this, more of that, more books out there. But also, probably going to result in some more money. Mm -hmm. And if we haven't figured out our thoughts around the money, (laughs) we might be rejecting that stuff. (laughs) And so he really pushed me to like, yeah. To get myself out there in some, some very specific ways and if left to my own devices, I probably would have spent, you know, a year thinking about the thing and multiple times you were like, okay, well, report back next week. I was like, oh, tell me what you did. Where are yeah. you? Yeah. yeah. But what I love is I didn't actually tell you what to do. It was already mm-hmm. there. It was just giving you permission to own that. Yeah. Yeah. Coaching. Yes. The important thing about coaching is that it's not telling someone what to do mm-hmm. it's helping them think about the frameworks they're using and whether those are really helpful for them or not yes and deeply rooted particularly most important element of that is that you're doing it with black women and right so folks are all acknowledging like yes racism exists sexism yes. exists right Saja yeah. noir right hatred of women exists in the society right. people don't think our bodies are our own and yet yeah. also you have these goals yeah so what are you going to do? <laughs> so, yeah. And okay, acknowledge yeah. it. And we still get to say what we want and create yes. what we want. It's not a, like, yeah, we're not fighting. We're going. Let's go. Yeah. 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 And so that's, um, uh-huh. it was fun and challenging and fun. <laughs> so good. And this, you uh-huh. might see. <laughs> She's pointing. She's pointing to one of the things they get so they can like monitor their stress level and their recovery yeah. and everything. So, yeah. My first wearable tech, mm-hmm. and I was a little skeptical at first, but I'm like, it's so important though. Like, what's the mind body connection? And I've continued yes. to use this and yes. really helps me think about my body and mm-hmm. sort of what I'm putting it through, yeah. which I think as Black women, right. 
is very important, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's all of like, we can't do this if we don't have mind-body connection and like learn yes. to recover from the stress. Because it's like we've said, there's some things out there that are very stressful yes. Yes. and doing your writing books like this, right? And getting the feedback from others. Those things create stress responses in our bodies we need to know and we need to have the tools to be able to tend to it also. Yes. Okay. Our time is up. I love oh, having you on. Please, guys, so go to the show notes. There is a 30% discount code. I just love that she did that all on her own through her own money thing. Like, yes, here's a code. Go to the site. Everybody get the book. I'll put a post up and y'all just share your takeaways from it. I would love for you guys to go to my Instagram page. I'll have a picture of the book and you guys, after you read it, share your takeaways with her. I would love that. And I'll, I'll tag yes. you in it. Yes. Yeah. I'm so excited to see it pop up. <laughs> All right. And as always, talk at you guys later. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Did you enjoy this podcast where I have a personal invitation? I want to spend time with you, coach you, talk about the issues that are affecting you. We do this in a community we call the Melanin Hour, created just for us high achieving Black women. You can register at brickjohnson.com forward slash coaching. And don't forget, Deeply Rooted is where we put all this shit together. We immerse ourselves and we master this. Six months, you, me, and a bunch of women that look like you and got a little melanin in them. <laughs> That's deeply rooted. You can register for the wait list at brickjohnson.com forward slash group. Hope to see you there. Bye.